This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.38, Human Sacrifice. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I was working from home before it was cool. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and all I can say is, it's a good thing we record this podcast from home. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 293 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Senor Stabby Hands, Taraxagote, and Maikuru X. You heard me right, I mentioned patrons and subscribers because we have launched a Subscribestar page. It's a bit light on content at the moment as we get it up to speed. But if you don't want to use the Patreon platform, this gives you another way to provide ongoing support for the podcast. You can find it at subscribestar.com slash Gundam podcast. This is a time of uncertainty and precarity for all of us. So if you would like to support the podcast, but cannot subscribe, patronize, or buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi, another way to support us is to write a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Help other Gundam fans find us. They could probably use the entertainment and distraction about now. Or just tell your friends. All of them. Every day. Did you say precarity? Yes. Nice. This week, we discuss Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 37, The Day of Dakar, or Dakaru no Hi. And our research this week covers Dakar itself and pirate broadcasts. Broadcast signal intrusion. Pirate broadcasts are actually a different thing. Broadcast signal intrusion. But first, let's tune in to TNN. And now, a special report from Lieutenant Tom Thompson. Good morning, Earth Federation. From side to side and Earth to moon and all the ships in space. This is Off the Beaten Path, and I'm Travelin' Tom Thompson, here to take you on a guided tour of Earth's finest vacation destinations. This week, I'm broadcasting live from the luxurious Hyman Hotel here at the Titans Kilimanjaro Nature Preserve and Ski Lodge. During the high season, rooms at this six-star hotel regularly rent for as much as two suitcases of gold plates per night. But I'm staying here free, courtesy of our friends at Hyman Hotels and the Titans Travel Group. Wow, what an opportunity. What are the accommodations like? When I first checked in, I thought that I wouldn't even want to leave my regally appointed seven-room suite with private sauna, but one look out my windows at the unspoiled natural beauty of the artificial ski slopes changed my mind. But best of all, 
From up here, I can see all the way down to the budget motel at the foot of the mountain, where my camera crew will be sleeping. Haha, <laughs> knowing that other people are suffering really helps me savor life's little luxuries. Exactly! And it's the attention to subtle details like these which really elevates all Titan's Travel Group resorts. Oh, hang on a moment. I just saw Heroic Titan's Lieutenant Jared Mesa go past. He's been here for the last few weeks enjoying all the pleasures of the Kilimanjaro experience. Let me see if I can get a quick interview with him. Lieutenant Jared? Lieutenant Jared? Uh, Jared, a moment. I I'm Lieutenant Thompson. We met at Jamie's birthday party. Can I ask you a few questions for the Titans? Sorry about that. Lieutenant Jared was in a real hurry, and he couldn't stop to talk, but I'll be sure to catch up with him later. How is the service there? Most of the staff at the hotel are students at the local Titans Technical College for Highly Motivated Orphans. And that name sure is appropriate. I have never encountered young people more terrified of the consequences of failure than the ones seeing to my every whim here in the hotel. But you don't come to the remote slopes of Africa's highest mountain just to relax in the lap of luxury. Besides skiing on some of the region's last remaining snow, clinging to the side of the mountain on one of the resort's many rock-climbing routes, or hiking up to the peak to chip off some souvenir ice from one of Kilimanjaro's quickly disappearing glaciers, you can also sign up for a guided wildlife safari. Upgrade to the deluxe premium package to experience nature in style from within the cockpit of a Hyzac. And you can keep as many giraffes as you can kill. You don't want to miss your chance to bag a giraffe before they're all gone. Uh, what's that noise in the background, Lieutenant? Uh, that is, um... Well, I'm sure it's... Uh, that is my alarm, which I set to remind me when it was time for my massage. I'll just, uh, finish up this broadcast, and then I should, I should go check on that. Check on your invigorating giraffe oil and healing crystal massage, you mean? Alert. All pilots to mobile feed. Alert. All pilots to mobile feed. Yes. Well, I don't want to keep you. Oh, thank God. But our sponsors do need me to ask just a few more questions. I've heard that Kilimanjaro is one of the Titans' travel group's most romantic destinations. What sort of options are there for couples looking to really feel the love? Well, um, of course there's a tandem hang gliding, which can be especially romantic if you go out at night when the sky is lit by the resort's searchlights. Or you could relax in the seamy couple's bath, sipping complimentary glasses of guava juice and Titans brand cola. But nothing compares to what you'll feel when you go out alone on the mountaintop and uh, hold that special someone in your arms. Why, I've heard that it practically guarantees the two of you will be together forever. Well, you know what they say about Hymen Hotels. They're the peak of luxury. He must really be enjoying that massage. We'll check back in with Lieutenant Thompson later. And now the recap for the day of Dakar.
Jared, in a Titan's ship, is pursuing the Aldumla, which seems to be on a ballistic trajectory headed for Dakar. His helmsman is concerned that they need authorization to take the pursuit any further. Dakar is leased territory, after all, and held by the Federation. Shouting him down, Jared insists they have orders from His Excellency Jemitov Haimem to take out Karaba. That is all the authorization they need. On the Audumla, Karaba and Ayug prepare for the next mission. Members of Karaba have already infiltrated the Federation Assembly and the staff of the local communications office, but the whole plan hinges on their ability to get Quattro into that day's meeting and on what Quattro says once he's there. Putting on their normal suits and preparing to launch, Amaro checks on a strangely calm Camille. I feel better when I'm doing things, Camille tells him, and they walk together to the hangar. It is Amaro who will take Quattro to the rendezvous point, from which Beltorchka will drive him to the assembly hall. Amaro joins the chorus of people telling Quattro he's the only one who can lead Ayug now, but Quattro remains unconvinced. I can't even make a decision about my own future, he blurts out, but Amaro is sure that doesn't matter. All the public wants is a hero. Frustrated, Quattro asks if he's supposed to just play a role, and Amaro can only respond, well, it's your turn. On her way to the rendezvous point, Beltorchka drops off a Karaba ally at the communications office before being stopped at a security checkpoint. I thought reporters had access, she sighs, while the Federation soldiers leer at her, and one gropes her as he returns her ID to her chest pocket. One of them has just hinted they might let her through in exchange for sex, when a young Titans officer arrives and tells them to back off. He and the Federation guards argue, and the argument turns into a brawl. One of the guards pulls his gun before the other drags him away, saying, Are you crazy? That guy's a Titan! Once they've gone, the young Titan, a Lieutenant Addis, asks Beltorchka to drop him at the Dakar base on her way to cover the assembly. Not all Federation soldiers are like that, and none of the Titans are, he assures her. She looks at him skeptically, while he regurgitates Titan's talking points about the need for a strong and righteous armed forces to manage this era of confusion. Sirens begin to sound as soon as they reach the base, and he rushes off, Beltorchka yelling after him that he should watch her broadcast. Ground forces have begun to fire on the Audumla, and their mobile suits launch to drop off Quattro and prevent the Titans from interfering with the mission. The Titans base launches their Ashimar mobile suits, and Beltorchka waits, her car parked in the grassland just outside the city. Amaro, avoiding attacks from other mobile suits and ground forces, drops Quattro off, and he and Beltorchka speed off to the assembly hall. The assembly members can hear the fighting nearby, as Amaro, Camille, and the rest of the combined Ayug and Karaba forces keep the Titans occupied. Should they suspend talks? Is it safe to continue? While the meeting breaks into a cacophony of argument, Quattro rushes the podium, taking over the microphone. Allies among the assembly members pull guns, keeping everyone in their seats and keeping the guards from stopping the broadcast. Karba plants among the camera crew take over filming, and the communications office will make sure the speech is broadcast on as many channels and to as many people as possible. Shocking the crowd, Quattro reveals himself to be not only Shar Aznable, famed Zeon pilot, but also the son of Zeon Dekun. He explains that the Zabi family and the Principality of Zeon perverted the ideas and ideals of Zeon Dekun, that Earth is collapsing under the strain of its human population, and that humans can improve by going into space. Meanwhile, Camille and Amaro continue to fight the Titans, trying to buy time for the broadcast, but the enemy pilots see through them. Jared sets out to destroy the communications infrastructure and stop the broadcast. 
Camille shoots Nastimar out of the sky. The pilot's wingman tries to slow the damaged mobile suit's descent, but they are headed straight for Dakar City. They are confused and angry when Camille, who never wanted to kill them in the first place, grabs hold and slows the Ashimar's fall, directing it away from the densely populated city. When the pilots ask why he helped them, he tells them, Listen to the broadcast! Shar compares Earth to a cradle and humanity to infants. In order to grow as a species, they must move into space and allow the Earth to return to its natural state. Jared's group arrives outside the hall, and Beltorchka takes one of the cameramen outside with her to capture the Titan's violent attempts at suppression on the broadcast. A beam flashes just over their heads, blindingly bright, and they crouch low at the exit of the building. Taking the camera from the terrified cameraman, Beltorchka steps out onto the plaza, capturing the mobile suit battle for all of humanity to see. The assembly members blame the Titans for instigating the fight inside the city. Char continues his speech, telling the audience in the room and around the Earth's sphere that the Titans are like the Zabis. They think they are better than other humans, they have no respect for the government, are tyrannical, and label all opposition as evil. In the cockpit of his Ashimar, Lieutenant Addis is in crisis. What is right? What is wrong? Everything he thought he knew has been turned upside down. One of Jared's men is about to stop the broadcast when Addis crashes into him knocking him off course and crying out, We mustn't stop the broadcast. Camille lands to fight the downed mobile suit. Jared comes up behind him, but Addis comes between them, asking why Jared is trying to stop the meeting. If the Titans are right, then it will be proven by the debates at the General Assembly. Surprised by this naive young officer, Jared counters that the Titans are about power, the power to conquer everything. He fires on Addis, and the beam goes straight through the Ashimar and strikes the assembly building on the other side. Intent on destroying the traitor, Jared advances on Addis once more, but is suddenly flanked by two more Ashimar. They've received word that the whole battle is being shown on television and have been ordered to stop fighting. They can't afford to have the Federation citizens turn against them. Afterwards, Karaba's officers celebrate a successful operation. They've shown the world how tyrannical, violent, and untrustworthy the Titans really are. Drink in hand, Char walks through the room to congratulations and pats on the back before leaving to stand by himself in the hall outside, staring out a window. Amuro goes after him to find out what's wrong. The members of A.U. Gankaraba are more inspired and excited than they've ever been thanks to his speech, but Char has given up his freedom in exchange. Amuro points out that to accomplish something massive, some human sacrifice is expected. So I'm a human sacrifice now, Shar asks angrily. Maybe it runs in your family, Amuro replies, causing them both to smile. Camille and Beltorchka shake hands and compliment each other for their part in the successful operation. Camille wonders if people are somehow destined to hate each other thanks to misunderstandings, but Beltorchka doesn't think so. All people can sympathize, but it takes time especially when you're dealing with all of humanity. Well, the fundamental thread of this episode seems to be young people asking questions about the nature of humanity, the nature of violence, 
the purpose of violence in a society, really essential core questions about existence and the society around them attempting largely unsatisfactorily to answer those questions. And on the other side, there are some older people, not necessarily that much older, who have either stopped asking or have come up with what they think is a solution. Because while Camille, for instance, has a lot of questions about what's right, and certainly Lieutenant Addis and uh, some others in the episode, people like Jared, Amaro, and Shaquatro all seem to have come to their own conclusions. The juxtaposition of those conclusions with those questions, I think, makes it clear that the answers that slightly older cohort have settled on are not necessarily the answers. Oh, I think absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) The first major question asked is Camille asking, why must I fight? I don't understand why I should be fighting. And Amaro's answer, which sounds like a theory that I've heard before and that I do not like, is that fighting is meaningless in and of itself, but that humanity requires war, essentially violence, combat, in order to develop over time, and that without it, humanity would have died off. That all of our continued survival is dependent on fighting. This is an argument you hear a lot when people talk about all of the scientific advancements that have been driven by warfare. Nuclear power as a product of the nuclear weapon. Right. I just, I don't think I buy that we would not have made those advancements without warfare, that none of those advancements would have come out of peace. You know, those advancements that were made during wartime were built on the back of science that was conducted during peacetime. Werner von Braun Uh, made rockets in wartime for war purposes. But I think the story of that man's life, which we talked about in the research piece on him a few episodes ago, makes it clear he would have built rockets under any circumstances whatsoever. It just so happened that he lived in a time when his rocket building mania was exploited by the military industrial complex in order to build weapons. What war can do And the reason why this argument does have some strength to it is that wars, especially the total wars of the 20th century, focus an entire nation's, really the entire world's energies, resources, into certain avenues of scientific progress. It's easier to get people to agree on what you should be spending money on when it appears that your survival is at stake. Although you'd think that would mean we'd be more focused on combating climate change. And yet. And yet. It's funny you should mention that because that's basically Char's speech in this episode. Why are we spending all of this money on warfare when the earth is dying? Yeah. While we're talking about Camille in that first scene, doesn't it kind of feel like Camille has recovered from the events of the previous episode way too fast? Well, I mean, yes, but not really. He has this conversation with Amaro where he he says, I feel better when I'm doing things, which is to say, I don't have to think about the fact that the first girl I ever loved died and that I couldn't save her as long as I'm busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a thing that people feeling grief do sometimes. They make sure that they never have enough quiet moments, enough unfilled moments to really feel the grief. Mm-hmm. So I assume that's what he's doing. But then later when Jared shows up on the battlefield 
Camille knows it's Jared. It's the same mobile suit. And yet he doesn't react to Jared's presence at all. He doesn't fly into a rage. He doesn't go after Jared. He doesn't even make a point of fighting Jared. Yeah, it's strange. Well, it's a different writer. (laughs) I do feel like these two writers don't entirely agree on, for instance, how much the previous episode affected Camille. Right, because it's one thing to understand logically that no amount of anger is going to bring four back. It's another to have no reaction to like being in the physical presence of and fighting her killer. Who you already hate, who also killed your mom. When you're Camille, a character defined by your anger and the way you express it often violently. You don't have to convince me that Zeta's <laughs> writing is sometimes a little spotty. Well, I don't want to say spotty because I think this is a really well-written episode. I think the last one was a really well-written episode. They just aren't talking to each other. Right. That's the meta level writing. On an episode level, I thought this was a great episode. I enjoyed it a lot. One of the best so far. But the way in which the episodes connect to each other and the way in which the story flows across the entirety of the work is also writing. That seems like something that we have to lay at the feet of Tomino. Often when we're talking about these shows, it's very easy to attribute all creative decisions to Tomino, which is not true and not fair. But when it comes to what Nina called sort of the meta level of writing, what happens in which episodes and how they connect to each other in the absence of somebody who's handling series composition or a head writer or something like that, it does ultimately come down to Tomino to make sure that everything is consistent and works well on that larger series-wide level. And either he's not doing it or he's doing it badly. We've talked before that he was likely working on other series at this time. He was no longer solely focused on Zeta. He had moved on to other projects. And so I'm sure he had plotted out a sort of outline of what was going to happen in each episode. But questions like, Do the characters' presentations, dialogue, behavior in this episode, within that action, seem consistent with the events that have happened to them recently? That's a much finer question that you really don't know the answer to until the episode writers have written the episode. And so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Directly after this why must I fight discussion, Camille also brings up the idea that it seems Beltorchka has changed. She went from being vehemently against warlike people, which it sounds like Amaro has accepted that he is one, (laughs) uh, to taking part in this mission, uh, to being very proactive and involved. And and Camille has noticed this and he asks Amaro about it. Has she changed? Has she realized this idea that you're telling me that humanity needs fighting and war to continue existing? And he says that it's not that, it's that she's an old type. She forgets the pain of the past and jumps into the next thing, which I think is absolutely an indictment of the (laughs) Japanese people's wartime memory. It seems to me a quite explicit finger pointing at the Japanese government and Japanese public that they have just forgotten the war and all of its pain and moved on to whatever is new. And that condemnation here also gives us one of the first definitions of what an old type is as opposed to a new type. There's been a lot of discussion about what makes a new type, and the assumption is anyone who's not a new type is an old type. Amuro comes at it from the other direction, but it's um, kind of hard to square this with what we know about new types. Because 
if we invert what Amaro is saying, we can conclude that a new type is somebody who lingers on the past, someone who cannot move on. I don't know that cannot move on is correct. But someone who carries that memory with them because of their incredibly sensitive empathy with other people is certainly going to move through life in a different way than someone who sort of naturally and gradually forgets about those things. This suggests that new types have a kind of atemporality, which is to say they don't have the same relationship with linear time that old types do. Because new types are more um, outside of time. They experience the past as part of the present rather than moving on from it, which uh, does connect to one thing we've heard about new types in the past, which was Lala saying, maybe someday we will even conquer time itself. Exactly. We already know, especially from Lala's death, but even somewhat from Fours, that there's this sense of new types existing outside of our conceptions of space and to some degree, time. Camille's next line was particularly interesting to me. He says, how much longer will humans be like that, I wonder? Does he include himself in human here? I don't think he does. The way that he says it, it sounds like he and Amaro are talking about those humans, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Which ties into what we heard Namikar say in the last episode, that the way a lot of people in the universal century think about new types, they're not human anymore. They came from humanity, but they are something new, some new evolution, some new offshoot. They are not human. How interesting that something like that would come up in the episode where Shaquatro reveals himself not only to be Shar, hero of Zeon, but also Kasfalrem Dekun, son of Zeon Dekun, harbinger of new types in the universal century. And while we don't hear his entire speech, we do know he is talking in an oblique kind of way about new types. He's talking about going out into space and humanity changing, becoming something else. I'm going to want to come back to that. But sticking with Camille's role in the episode, he opens our episode with this discussion of why is war necessary and ends it talking to Beltorchka. It's a sweet scene between the two of them. It's really nice. They bury the hatchet. They do bury the hatchet. And he asks her, are people destined to hate each other through misunderstandings? She thinks no. And she takes a very different view than Amaro, actually. She says there are people who can envision the future and those who can't. And that people who are too desperate, whose feelings are in too much turmoil, lose sight of that vision of the future. Which, if you think about it, she's really saying, if you can't let go of the past, then you cannot imagine a better future. That there are people with this vision and people without it. And that she didn't have it before because she was, I mean, the word they use is desperate, but think about what she was like in the previous episodes. She was hurt. She was scared. I think desperate is a good word. She had found something comforting. She had found Amaro and she was desperate not to lose that. All of her conflict with Camille came down to a fear that Camille was going to take Amaro away from her in one way or another. You were making faces when I talked about the people who can envision the future and people who can't. You're not sure you agree. No, that's, um, that's not what I was making faces ah, about. Okay. It was more specifically 
when you were talking about the ability to forget the past mm. being the key factor in whether or not you can envision the future. And I'm not sure that's what Beltorchka said. I'm not sure I mean forget. <laughs> if I said forget, that wasn't exactly what I meant. I suppose I mean emotional distance, because clearly she hasn't forgotten about the things that happened to her, but she no longer has that desperation that drove all of her actions and decisions previously. She lost sight of the vision of the future. But that's not necessarily different from what Amuro was saying. Because Amuro was talking about new types as though they lived at once in the past, present, and the future. Okay. Whereas for Beltorchka, she's saying you need to have a view of the future and you can't let the experiences of the present cloud that vision. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I see it. And she does say that she thinks all people can sympathize with each other, but that it takes time, especially when you're trying to change a whole society or entire groups. And then Camille says something odd. He says, if a time came when we could all sympathize with each other, I think we would encounter those who have passed away, which harkens back again to our discussion. He's basically saying, if we all became new types, we would all exist outside of time. And so everyone who had passed away would still be alive because time wouldn't matter anymore. But it felt strange. <laughs> I will posit that the reason it felt strange is because it suggests a level of emotional distance between Camille and Four's death that has come too soon. Right. He's not relating it to his own loved ones who are gone. He doesn't tie it to his parents. He doesn't tie it to Four. It's this abstraction, people who have died. Right. And if this came four or five episodes from now, then it would make more sense. Because at that point, we would understand that Camille has gotten over that like keen, immediate feeling of loss and of grief. And yet he is still feeling this longing, this desire to see them again. It's nice that the episode ends with Camille and Beltorchka meeting again and it being such a nice little scene between the two of them. because. The two of them look so good in this episode. Like, this is really an episode that, that makes both of them look... I, okay, I know, what you, I know what you're laughing about. I know what you're laughing about. I actually meant for real, though. Like, as characters, both of them are made to look really good in this episode. Tom means as characters and humans. Yeah. Beltorchka Their actions is, are great. Beltorchka is courageous. Calm under fire. Camille is a good boy. So good. He goes the entire episode without killing anybody. He grabs those titans who are about to crash into the city. They're like, why did you save me? He's like, oh, because I don't want a bunch more people to die. Why do I even have to explain this? <laughs> you guys are the worst. But I assume what you were laughing about was the fact that uh, the people drawing Camille in this episode have apparently never actually seen Camille before. And it, especially in this scene, there's a really bizarre flicker of Beltorchka's shoulder. It's when she's laughing, and so they're doing the, like, body trembling with laughter thing. They make the patch on her shoulder jump, like, an inch back and forth. Or disappear and reappear. <laughs> it's an awkwardly animated scene. There are various points where their faces look awfully strange. But it's true. They were, as people, were pretty great. I especially enjoyed Beltorchka when the cameraman is rightfully terrified because they leave the assembly building and there are mobile suits fighting and, and beam fire going overhead. And he, he's on the ground like, oh, I'm, I'm not <laughs> going. She's like, fine, give me the camera. <laughs> Takes off. 
it was pretty cool. She's great. Oh, we mentioned a few episodes back the last time we encountered a run of particularly wonky facial animation that that episode was handled by animation director Kaneyama Akihiro. This episode is also one of his. Oh, yeah. well then. Okay. He's just, faces are not important. Sensing a pattern. <laughs> it's a shame though, because in general, this is a very good looking episode. There's a couple of egregiously bad scenes that really take you out of it. But for the most part, the episode is beautiful. I think the composition of scenes is phenomenal. Whoever was doing the storyboards for it brought their A game. The mobile suit fights were great. The scenes on the Dakar streets I thought were fabulous. The stuff in the assembly hall. It was a good episode. Yeah, the dialogue was good. But even beyond that, the like construction of the episode, the way the scenes worked together, it was exciting. It was dramatic. It was emotional. Like, great episode. The overall storytelling, phenomenal. One of the best of Zeta so far. Some little animation issues that took us out of it a bit. But by and large, this was a, a favorite. And then fulfilling the young questioner role on the Titans side, we have Lieutenant Addis. His full name is Lieutenant Addis Ajiba, based on the city Addis Ababa. We get the signal that he is a good guy because he protects Beltorchka from some really creepy guards who yeah. have already groped her and yeah. are definitely trying to get her to bribe them with sexual favors. This is a really distinct running theme in Zeta. Like every time a lone woman finds herself in the like clutches of a group of guards, they always grope her. Yeah. And frequently threaten to do more. Yeah. So keep an eye on that because, boy, is that a theme. But Lieutenant Addis arrives in the nick of time to prevent things from getting worse. He is assaulted by the soldiers. One of them takes the butt of his gun and knocks him over the back of the head. Fractures his shoulder. Oh, is that? I thought he had the shoulder fracture before. Okay. Got you. Well, and it kind of looks like he's about to shoot him until the other guards are like, no, that's a titan. You fool. He's clearly very idealistic. He apologizes to her for the guards, assures her that the feds aren't all like that, claims that there aren't any titans like that. <laughs> he repeats some talking points from Hyman. Some propaganda. Yeah, about how it's necessary that there be like a morally righteous and upstanding military to take charge in these troubled times, right. which is just like classic Japanese militarist ideology straight out of the 1930s and the 1940s. It's also common all over the world. Um, yeah, I feel like it's a classic playbook for military dictatorships to say, ah, in this era of confusion, in these times full of upheaval, what you need is like a strong armed forces to get everything under control. And then, of course, once things have calmed down, we'll back off. Well, when I was researching the Young Officers Revolt, and they were very much about this ideology of the virtuous army. The point came up that this works so often because when things are going badly, if the civilian government is perceived to be corrupt or actually is corrupt, is perceived to be incompetent or actually is incompetent, like if there is a lot of widespread displeasure and distrust in the civilian government, the military usually is viewed much more favorably for the simple reason that they have kept themselves out of politics and therefore their integrity is not tarnished. 
there's no evidence that they are any more efficient or any more uh, effective or as less administrators. Corrupt. It's simply that they have not become involved, and so they have not been tarnished. That's why political outsiders sometimes do very well in elections, because they're not tarnished by political decision-making. They don't have a track record that can be used against them. Addis goes on to ask the essential question, what is right or wrong? <laughs> and he is sort of desperately asking himself this in his cockpit while he listens to the broadcast and is realizing that all of the propaganda that he's been fed, everything that he's been taught, everything that's been part of his education, his training, his socialization, the culture that he lives in, is some of it is maybe wrong. And he doesn't know what to believe. And when he intervenes in the battle on Ayuk's behalf, on Camille's behalf, it's to say, if our ideals are correct, that will be proven in the assembly. Right. This very, I think, democratic idea that, well, we're going to have a debate about these ideas and the best ideas will win. Like, if our ideas aren't the best, then what are we worried about? <laughs> Clearly, we should be open to free debate about these issues if we are correct. And if you're the sort of person who wants to believe that you are a good person on the side of righteousness doing the right thing, that's a very appealing notion. If you're Jared, on the other hand, you have an ideal response to that. If we've ever wondered where exactly Jared stands on all of this, we get some idea in this episode. His position is quite baldly, might makes right. The Titans are power. The Titans have power that makes them right. And they can and should do whatever it takes to preserve their power. Hey, that sounds like something I said last episode in the research section. And I did not know that this was coming. I had forgotten about this line. My analysis of the series is just so good. Ooh, spooky premonitions. <laughs> Ooh, the ghost of Jared's morals. Um, yeah, he says, whoever has power will conquer everything. Uh, as if the conquering of everything is a goal in and of itself. There's no further purpose. He also takes issue with Shaquatro's discussion of uh, humanity clinging to Earth and that humanity could improve by going to space. And Jared says, but that's what the Titans are doing. Hmm. To Jared's mind, the Titans' presence in space as a way to improve humanity is enough. He's, he ignores the entire environmental question and focuses solely on this idea of moving to space as a necessary step in humanity's evolution and that the tiny fraction of Titans doing so is enough of a step in that direction. Or he is remembering what Sirocco told him the ultimate plan was. Because remember, it was Jared Sirocco was talking to when he said Hyman's ultimate plan is to force everybody into space. I don't know if we've talked about this yet, but I realize what he tells Jared is basically an accelerationist idea. We're going to make the Earth unlivable faster to force everyone to leave. Right. We've identified the problem, which is that as the Earth becomes less and less habitable, it will cause enormous suffering for people. Our solution is to cause much more suffering even faster in order to prevent that from happening. While Lieutenant Addis is the one who gets most of the voice lines, he's the one who goes through the sort of conversion process, I really like the depiction of all of the Titans who are in this little garrison here at Dakar. In particular, there's one who you just 
see him in passing. I don't think he says anything. Um, he's the one who switches off the TV before they sortie, who looks so young. He looks like he's about Camille's age. He actually kind of looks like Camille or like a Camille Amaro cross. He doesn't need to say anything. His mere presence in the episode, I think, tells you a lot about this group of titans. And the one older titan who tries to stop Addis from fighting, he says, we're not so strapped for pilots that we need an injured guy to go out. With his big old, like, friendly walrus mustache. Speaking of the perceived integrity of governments, there's one character who is very important in this episode and who we never see. We find out that Luo Wumin was basically essential to pulling off this whole endeavor, that he has influence with some assembly members, and that's what has enabled them to plant their own people in the assembly so that they can stop the guards from shutting them down, so that they can take over the broadcast. He's been mentioned before, and somehow more than any other character who's part of it, I feel like the fact that he is so powerful and influential, but that we never see him, speaks to this sense that there are people in the world with so much money, so many connections, so much accrued power, and we don't even know who they are. I mean, they're literal elites pulling the strings from the shadows. Right. That's one of the things about this assembly hall, the way it's depicted. It looks a lot like the General Assembly of the United Nations. We've seen it before, and I mentioned then, and I'm going to say again now, it is full of men. There's one very brief shot through one of the television sets that implies the presence of a woman, but I don't think she's ever depicted in any of the shots from inside the assembly hall. They're all white. Like last time we saw them, there were some men dressed in traditional Bedouin garb, but now they are all men, all white, all older, all wearing business suits. And probably 90% of them have brown hair. The uniformity of the way they're depicted, their faceless interchangeableness really goes a long way to show how insignificant the civilian wing of the Federation is, at least to this story. I felt vindicated a little bit this episode because I've been saying since the beginning, everybody keeps saying, Shaquatro, you're the only one who can lead Ayug. Quatro, you're the only one who can lead Ayug. And I'm like, why? He's terrible. Why does everybody <laughs> think he's the best person for this? It turns out they don't. <laughs> he and Amro have this discussion before they get in the mobile suit. Amro says, you're the only one capable of leading Ayug. Quatro says, but I can't even make decisions about my own future. Like, <laughs> I can't decide anything. Why? And Amaro says it has nothing to do with your leadership ability. It's that the public wants a hero. Oh, so you're telling me to play a clown. It's your turn. <laughs> the script hasn't changed. It's just your turn to get on stage. I love it. I love it so much. And Amaro's expression in that moment is perfect. It's just this like almost deadpan staring at Quattro. And Quattro clearly stunned. It has never occurred to him before that Amaro feels this way or looks at it in this way because he just says Amaro. <laughs> Think back to the way this shot is staged. They're getting into Amaro's DJ right next to the Hakushiki. They are getting into Amaro's like Gelguga-like standing next to Char's Gundamish. Gundamesque. So this role reversal between the two of them, Amaro's sense that I had to be the hero last time and now it's your turn. So good. Well, and then what Amaro tells him at the end, 
And Char describes this role as playing a clown. But Amaro describes it later on from his own personal experience as being a human sacrifice. That conversation at the end actually made me very angry. Why is that? Char is lamenting his loss of freedom and comparing it to a human sacrifice. But it's very clear he didn't think that Ayug's goals were going to be accomplished without sacrifice. He just didn't want to be the one making it. He has been perfectly happy to sacrifice other people's freedom, other people's lives, other people's sanity. He just didn't want to do it himself. I'm furious. He didn't comfort Camille when Camille was getting beaten up because how dare he act like he had the freedoms of a normal 15-year-old. It was just the way things are. But Char's losses deserve sympathy. So it seems to you like Amro is all about self-sacrifice, but Shaquatro is about making other people pay the price? Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. What? Hmm. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> also, that... Qu- and now I don't know whether to call him Quattro or Char. This is the beauty of Shaquatro. That Shaquatro does not see the irony in his complaints. He was not naive enough to think they were going to achieve anything without sacrifice. He is just upset. Oh no, I have to sacrifice now. <laughs> You've all cornered me into it. Anyway, I have at various points had sympathy for him. This is not one. <laughs> he is a bad person. <laughs> I haven't read the Zeta Gundam novelizations, which came out around the same time as the show, but there is an interview with Tomino where he's talking about them, and one of the questions reveals that in the Zeta Gundam novelizations, when this happens, Sela, who is listening to her brother's speech, does not remain silent the way she does in the show because her voice actor was not available, um, which is the reason she's not a bigger presence in the show. In the books... Sayla says something like, I think I might have to kill my brother. Wow. Yeah. She hears his speech and is like, "Uh uh-oh. I guess my brother's back on his There's a lot of his speech that seem to make perfect sense and be totally fine. There are parts of his speech that are concerning. When he talks about how they need to take drastic action to repair the earth, I'm with him. He talks about You know, humanity is already very successfully living in space. It's not as if it's a great hardship to go live in space colonies. We've seen how most people live there. It looks pretty nice. I'm not entirely sure I buy the idea that merely leaving the Earth alone would let it return to a sort of... A sort of state of nature. Right. Without doing some things to clean up what you've left behind. Uh, You're talking about probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years to return it to a state of nature. (laughs) But remember, this is Shaquatro we're talking about. Just ignore it and it'll grow up fine is his whole theory of parenting. But we get into a bit of the sort of speciest stuff then. But he feels a bit self-contradictory here because he says humans in space wrongly believe they are superior to humans on Earth. Okay. He goes on to compare humans on Earth to infants, to parasites that they cannot grow up as a species unless they leave the Earth behind. And these make it sound like he thinks maybe people in space are superior (laughs) to people on Earth. I think what you may be overlooking is that he's consciously drawing a distinction between himself and the Zabi family. Right. And when he talks about the people in space 
came to believe that they were superior. He talks, uh, I think he briefly mentions uh, like expanding their living space, which is a pretty, I think, clear reference to the Nazi ideology of uh, Lebensraum, living space. Well, and one of Zeon's goals was to expand their territory. To take over Earth. Yeah. So he's saying the Zabis were wrong to think that merely by living in space, they, the space noids, were superior. He also compares the Zabis to the Titans, who are also an elite group who think they're better than everyone. And in perhaps one of the best character encapsulations ever, we get a brief cutaway. We're getting a lot of different sort of philosophical and political perspectives here. And they want us to have the full picture. And so they also give us the sort of pessimistic, disengaged viewpoint of Kai in a bar listening to people argue about the broadcast, some complaining about the Federation, some saying that the Titans are all murderers, some countering, we're all murderers. You're a murderer. We're all murderers. We all just live on each other's suffering and then die as Kai drinks alone <laughs> in a bar. It's a very sort of nihilistic, I think that's the word that I wanted, attitude that says, well, we're all equally bad, and apparently there's nothing we're going to do about it. So have another drink. And now our research on Dakar City and... Broadcast signal intrusion. Pirate radio. Different thing, different thing. They are not the same. We return to Dakar, seat of the Federation's civilian government. The locale is significant enough to be included in the episode's title, The Day of Dakar, or Dakar no Hi. Just like the last time we were here, when a dying Blex 4 passed the mantle of Ayuk leadership to Lieutenant Quattro Bergina, the show has highlighted the encroaching desertification that threatens to consume the city, both through the dialogue and through the way the climate is depicted. For more on that theme, you can listen to Nina's research on the history of desertification back in episode 2.25, Win Every Battle, Lose the War. Suffice it to say, for now, that Zeta is still deeply concerned with the idea, which is eloquently expressed by Shaquatro, that human activity on Earth has exhausted the planet. Dakar's proximity to the ominously growing Sahara Desert is ideal to express this theme. It's close enough that the threat of desertification reaching the city is believable, but far enough away, at least for now in our timeline, that for Dakar to be on the verge of being engulfed by the desert is still the stuff of the nightmarish future that Gundam depicts. But why else was Dakar chosen for the Federation's capital? If it were merely about setting the episode in a large city proximate to the Sahara, they could have picked Cairo or Tunis, Algiers, Tripoli, Casablanca, Marrakesh, Khartoum, Addis Ababa, Niamey, or Accra. Well, Dakar, like so much of what we've talked about, is deeply enmeshed in the sordid history of a colonialism. And once you learn a bit more about the city's history, I think it's going to start making a lot of sense why the Federation government would be based here. Today, Dakar is the capital of Senegal, on the western coast of Africa. The city is roughly triangular, and it occupies the tip of the Cap Vert, or Cape Verde Peninsula, a spit of land that juts out some 40 kilometers from the coast of Africa into the Atlantic Ocean. 
The Cap Vert Peninsula is the westernmost bit of land in all continental Africa, and so Dakar is the westernmost city. The archipelago that we usually call Cape Verde or Cabo Verde, home to the Republic of Cabo Verde, is a mere 560 kilometers west of the Cap Verde Peninsula, from which it takes its name. This confusing mess of similar-sounding names, Cap Verde, Cape Verde, Cabo Verde, etc., is an artifact of European colonialism, and it tells the broader story of the region's history. In 1444, Portuguese slave traders reached the peninsula and they named it Cabo Verde, or the Green Cape. When, in 1456, the Portuguese stumbled across the nearby island chain, they gave it the same name. Over time, English speakers took to calling the islands Cape Verde or Cape Verde, but Portugal held on to the islands, and the local name remained the Portuguese Cabo Verde. Over on the peninsula, though, the Portuguese set up their base initially on the island now called Gore in the bay between the peninsula and the mainland. Control of Gore passed from the Portuguese to the United Provinces, who gave it that name, then to the English, and finally to the French in 1677. And Cape Verde, or Cabo Verde, became the French version of that, Cap Vert. The peninsula and the mainland were dominated first by the local Wolof Empire, and after the empire's breakup in 1549, by the successor kingdom, Kayor. Kayor rule endured for another 250 years before the Lebu people, who inhabited the peninsula, broke away to form their own small theocratic state around what is today Dakar. That was in 1795, but after 50 years of independence, they collided with French ambitions, and soon, in 1857, their capital, Ndakaru, became the French military base, Dakar. Those French imperial colonial ambitions were largely driven by greed. Until the 1800s, Dakar, Gore, and the whole region had principally interested the French as an abundant source of enslaved people. Local powers like Kayor enslaved huge numbers of people perhaps as many as a third of the population, and would then sell some of those people to the French, and before that to the other colonial powers that had preceded them. The French would then ship them to the French Antilles to be used as forced labor on plantations. When successive French governments abolished, reinstated, reabolished, but not really, and then re-re-reabolished slavery for realsies this time, the traffic in enslaved people died out and the colonial economy shifted heavily to resource extraction. Dakar shifted to exporting peanuts that were grown nearby, but the real trade in the region was acacia gum, or as I always heard it called when I was growing up, gum Arabic, so-called because Europeans initially got the stuff via Arabic trade. Acacia gum is edible. Today, it's a key ingredient in soft drink syrup and gummy candies. But in the 1800s, it was mostly used as a binder in glue, ink, paint, and so on. It was also a vital component in early industrial textile manufacture, and the highest quality acacia gum came from interior West Africa, via the Senegal River, down to the French-controlled port town of St. Louis. The Senegal River was controlled at this time by two African states, the Wallo Kingdom, another post-Wolof Empire successor state, on the south bank, and the Moorish Emirate of Trarza on the north bank. Wallo had close ties with the French, and they received significant fees in payment for protecting the shipments of acacia gum that were coming down the river. The French relationship with Trarza on the north bank was more antagonistic, 
in part because Trarza and Wallo had a long history of internal conflict, and perhaps more importantly, because the emirate of Trarza was more proximate to the nearby British colony of Mauritania, which meant that there was always a risk they might ally with France's great rival. So when, in 1825, the emir of Trarza negotiated a marriage alliance with the Wallo kingdom that threatened to unite the two nations into one with total control of both sides of the river, the French responded by invading. Part of the context behind this is that Trarza and the other countries like it in the region had been engaged for centuries in the very lucrative business of raiding neighboring countries, enslaving those they captured, and selling them to the Europeans at Dakar. The French on-again, off-again ban on human trafficking was a major blow to local elites like the Emir of Trarza, and they were trying to make up the lost revenue through tariffs on acacia gum. But those tariffs irritated the French trading firms, and before you know it, the French colonial governor is getting orders to seize and fortify the whole Senegal River as just properly French territory. Now enters Louis Federbe, colonial governor and general. Federbe's life and career reads like the squares on a famous Europeans of the 19th century bingo card. He was born into a large family, and he became a career soldier in the colonial forces. He was posted to St. Louis around the same time that the French business interests started pushing hard for the occupation of the Senegal River Zone. And when the governor at the time was slow to act, Federbe got his boss fired for lack of enthusiasm. Federbe, who was clearly bursting with enthusiasm for the mission, got the job instead, and he ran with it. Over the course of six years, he built a series of forts up the length of the Senegal River, conquering the Wallow Kingdom along the way, and finding excuses for wars with other powers in the region. It was a classic example of that tactic of finding a relatively weak local power, signing a treaty of protection and mutual aid with them, and then using that as an excuse to go to war against the stronger powers in the region. Soon, he had fulfilled his orders. But he had not yet satisfied his enthusiasm for conquest, and so, exceeding his authority... He expanded French holdings in the region through a series of wars against the nations in what is today southern Senegal. Among these, the Lebu Republic, their capital, Ndakaru, and the Cap Vert Peninsula. Once conquered and built up, Dakar and the peninsula offered a much better port than St. Louis ever had, and a much stronger economic base from which they could support the future conquest of Africa. From 1857 on, Dakar did exactly that. It became a major port, a telegraph hub, and a railroad terminus for the lines that plunged deep into the interior of Africa. In time, it would also be part of France's earliest airmail network. Dakar connected France's African colonies with the larger empire, and it became a thriving industrial, military, and political hub. It soon eclipsed St. Louis and became the capital of French West Africa in 1902, as well as one of the largest and wealthiest cities in Africa and indeed in the whole French Empire. So, Dakar actually has a lot of experience serving as the nerve center for a far-flung colonial empire like the Earth Federation. But there are some other ways in which the city's history can be seen in this episode, and perhaps even one specific incident that might have inspired some of what we saw. So first, let's talk urban planning. Early on in Dakar's development, the urban planners for the city modeled it on Paris. Specifically, they designed the city's buildings to house multiple families living on different floors of the building. In Paris, 
Buildings built this way were divided according to class lines, with shops or offices on the ground floor, then several stories of apartments that were intentionally built to form a consistent hierarchy of quality, space, convenience, and prestige that ran from the largest and finest on what in America we would call the second story, to the garret rooms in the attic, usually occupied by servants for those living in the better conditions below. But in Dakar, you will not be surprised to learn, these divisions were simpler, and they were based on race rather than class. Black African citizens and white European citizens lived in the same buildings, but on adjacent floors, with Africans living on the ground floor and Europeans living on the breezy second floor. But as time wore on, and we're talking about 1900 now, the black citizens of Dakar were largely, although not entirely, forced to move out of the white neighborhoods and urban centers. In 1914, the governor general at the time ordered the creation of a specific settlement for the city's Africans, which they called the Medina, and he put it in the desert. Shades here, perhaps, of the Federation's decision to evict the underclasses from Earth and send them out to live in new settlements in space, which is kind of like the ultimate desert. This may also reflect why in the city of Dakar in Africa we see exactly one black person and he's a soldier. Everyone living in the political urban center, everyone in the assembly chamber, they're all white. Prior to 1911, the French army in Dakar was divided into two forces. There was the general colonial army and the Senegalese tirailleurs. The tirailleurs were composed of light infantry recruited from throughout French West Africa, but crucially, they were all rural subjects of the empire. Those Africans who were born into one of the French colonial towns, like Dakar, were given a special status that made them a kind of second-class French citizen. Those classified in this way were called originaires, and they were permitted to serve in the general French colonial forces alongside the white settlers and volunteers from metropolitan France. But in 1911, the French Empire reorganized its colonial forces, and everyone who was considered an originaire was dismissed from the general army. At the same time, the tirailleurs were opened up to originaire recruits for the very first time. The message was clear. The titans, sorry, I mean the army, the real army, is for Francenoids only. But now let's get specific to the day of Dakar. And for this, let's jump ahead to when Senegal became independent. Now, in the 1950s, the French Empire was disintegrating. Technically, the French Empire had died during World War II, when the Allies and the Free French clashed with Vichy forces for control of the colonies, and what replaced it in 1946 was actually the French Union. The Union was supposed to be a single, globe-spanning nation made up of all the former colonies, now overseas departments, or overseas territories, and metropolitan France. Everyone living in this French Union would be assimilated. No matter their origin, they would be French. And there would be a single, unified government located in metropolitan France. So in practice, there was still a single, remote government calling the shots. And unlike the British Empire, which around this time was devolving power to increasingly autonomous local governments, the French Union kept the power centralized. There were local assemblies, in some places overseas, but they exercised little real power. This was not a satisfying solution, especially because the central government was focusing all of its attentions on rebuilding the homeland, 
devastated as it was by the Great War that had only a few years prior ended, and ignoring the needs of the colonies while simultaneously stripping them of the resources and authority that was necessary to address their own needs. And hey, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But I said we were getting specific here, so let's press on. In the 1950s, the French Union was disintegrating. The French pulled out of Indochina in 1954. In 1956, Morocco and Tunisia gained their independence. And in Algeria, demands for independence were turning into all-out war. In 1958, afraid that the government would abandon the bloody struggle to keep Algeria under French dominion, French hardliners in the army staged a coup d'etat that brought down the Fourth Republic and returned Charles de Gaulle to power. But if they had chosen de Gaulle expecting the old nationalist hero to fight to the last drop of blood in order to hold on to the colonies, they must have been badly disappointed when, within a year, his Fifth French Republic reformed the centralized French Union into the French Community, a federation of the colonies who were now self-governed and largely autonomous states. The Community was led by a president, de Gaulle, and by an executive council composed of the heads of government and certain ministers from each of these states. The executive council was set to meet several times per year, the first meeting was held at the Elysee Palace in Paris, but they could be held in the capitals of any of the member states. And so it came to pass that at the sixth meeting of this executive council in December 1959, the delegation from the West African states of Senegal and French Sudan appealed to de Gaulle and the executive council asking for independence. Their appeal was persuasive. Within the year, they were allowed to leave the community as the newly independent Mali Federation. And that sixth meeting, that persuasive appeal for independence for the former colonies, they happened in Dakar. But the Mali Federation turned out to be an unstable union. The political, ethnic, and religious friction between what had been Senegal and what had been the Republic of Sudan spilled over almost immediately. Within six weeks, the two were at each other's throats. The Sudanese mobilized the military, and the Senegalese responded by calling out the gendarmes, the armed national police. There was little actual fighting between these two nominally allied forces, but the standoff drove a wedge down the middle of the Mali Federation, and at midnight on the following day, Senegal declared its own independence. Kind of like how the titans from Jared's squadron and the garrison protecting Dakar wind up in a tense standoff with serious and far-reaching political reverberations. While it is not made explicit in the episode, we can imagine that, with control of the communication infrastructure, Karaba would want as many people as possible to see and hear Shar's speech. Not just those people already tuned in to the broadcast of the assembly meeting. It's a little bit like relying on who watches C-SPAN for fun <laughs> to get your political message out. They would want it on as many channels as possible. The act of hijacking broadcasts on radio or TV is called broadcast signal intrusion. It is a type of pirate broadcasting that involves putting one's own content on someone else's channel or feed, while pirate TV and radio involves any type of broadcasting without a license. The technical aspects of how this is done vary depending on the technology in use at the time, so I'm not going to be getting into those specifics, but many of the sources for this research address that if you're interested. 
I'm also going to stick to events of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but you should know that broadcast signal intrusion is still relatively common, with some of my sources listing incidents through the early 2000s and 2010s. There have been a few famous broadcast signal intrusion incidents, and while many of the most famous happened after Zeta aired, it was quite common in the 70s and early 80s as well, including in Japan, where it is called denpa-jaku, or signal jacking. These incidents run the gamut from strange or funny to creepy or serious. In 1966, an 18-year-old in Kaluga, a city in the USSR, managed to broadcast a hoax announcement that nuclear war had broken out between their country and the United States. Pirate broadcasts were common in the USSR due to state-controlled broadcast media and high demand for other types of content. In 1977, the Independent Broadcasting Authority in the UK experienced an intrusion to the Southern Television Broadcast. The early evening news was interrupted by a six-minute speech from Vrilon, a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command. This message from space included such sentiments as, We speak to you now in peace and wisdom, as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world, so that you may communicate to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster which threatens your world and the beings on the worlds around you. This is in order that you may share in the Great Awakening as the planet passes into the new age of Aquarius. The new age can be a time of great peace and evolution for your race, but only if your rulers are made aware of the evil forces that can overshadow their judgments. All your weapons of evil must be removed. The time for conflict is now past, and the race of which you are a part may proceed to the higher stages of evolution, if you show yourselves worthy to do this. You have but a short time to learn to live together in peace and goodwill. Only those who learn to live in peace will pass to the higher realms of spiritual evolution. You must learn to be sensitive to the voice within that can tell you what is truth and what is confusion, chaos, and untruth. Learn to listen to the voice of truth which is within you, and you will lead yourselves onto the path of evolution. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? I have expected them to go on to say, and once everybody has done this, the dead will live again within you. A transcript of the entire message will be linked in the show notes. The incident garnered some international attention, but the hoaxer was never identified. In the United States, 1986 saw John R. McDougall, a.k.a. Captain Midnight, interrupt HBO's satellite feed to protest against charges for scrambled satellite channels. He worked in satellite dish sales and installation, and saw a significant drop in business after HBO and other premium movie channels started scrambling their signal. The movie in progress was replaced by the classic television test pattern color bars, and the text, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way! Showtime movie channel? Beware! (laughs) Pretty tame by comparison to pretending to be an emissary from Aliens, But the media labeled the incident everything from the first instance of high-tech terrorism to the most widely watched electronic graffiti in the world. It's amazing the things we used to call terrorism. (laughs) It also resulted in satellite hijacking being reclassified in the United States from a misdemeanor to a felony. He ruined it for everybody. In 1987, the Playboy Channel's satellite signal was jammed on a Sunday evening with a religious message. Thus saith the Lord thy God, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
in white text on a black background. The Max Headroom signal hijacking in 1987 is a particularly famous one. Max Headroom was a character from TV, a fictional AI intended to satirize insincere and egotistical TV personalities. With the appearance of a boring, middle-class white guy in a suit, but still media-savvy and gleefully disrespectful in a way that appealed to young viewers. In the signal hijacking, someone in a Max Headroom mask and sunglasses disrupted two Chicago TV stations. There is no known motive, and the contents of the broadcast are strange, dadaist, and a little obscene. Among other things, the masked person made a rude gesture with what appeared to be a rubber appendage, as well as flashing their butt at the camera while another person smacked it with a fly swatter. Those responsible were never caught, and federal officials were never able to figure out exactly how they did it. The whole thing became something of a cyberpunk hacking trope, and is credited with popularizing broadcast intrusion in the popular imagination, finding its way into films like the 1989 Batman, Pump Up the Volume in 1990, Hackers in 1995, and many more. That same year, A guest of an employee on the set of KNBC's 4 p.m. news pulled a gun and took reporter David Horowitz hostage, live on air. The gunman forced Horowitz to read a statement, but unbeknownst to him, the broadcast had already been taken off the air. The outcome Karaba were trying to avoid by placing plants among the assembly, the film crew, and the communications office. It turned out that the gun was actually a BB gun, and the incident led to realistic-looking fake guns being banned in several U.S. states. In 1985, four astronomers at Poland's University of Torun hijacked a state-run TV station to air messages of support for the labor movement Solidarity. The messages read, Enough price increases, lies, and repressions. Solidarity Torun. And it is our duty to boycott the election, referring to the rigged parliamentary elections that were to take place the following month, and ended with the Solidarity logo. In Japan, there were high-profile broadcast signal intrusion incidents in 1978, 85, and 87. In 1978, the NHK broadcast in Tokyo wards of Shinjuku, Shibuya, Suginami, Nakano, and Nerima were interrupted by audio-only intrusion. It lasted about 15 minutes, began with a revolutionary song, and then a woman's voice accusing the police of involvement in the deaths of student members of the Japan Revolutionary Communist League, Revolutionary Marxist Faction, and appealing the results of the probe into the Mizumoto incident. A Nihon University College of Art student, Mizumoto Kiyoshi, had been found dead in the Edo River. His death was declared a death by drowning and then a suicide, but his mother viewed the body and said it wasn't him. The JRCL believed that the drowned body was a lookalike and that Mizumoto had been murdered by police with CIA involvement. I tried to find more information on this incident as it seems, based on its timing, like a likely inspiration for this episode, but I couldn't find much other than what is on Japanese Wikipedia. The sources the Wikipedia lists are Japanese newspaper articles that I cannot access, and the only other sites I found that reference it are far-left websites that I absolutely cannot vouch for as sources. In 1985, the Japan Revolutionary Communist League National Committee Middle Corps faction supported Hasegawa Hidenori for election to the Tokyo Assembly as a representative for Suginami Ward. They were opposed by the Japan Revolutionary Communist League Revolutionary Marxist faction, who dempajacked 104 outdoor emergency broadcast speakers at elementary and junior high schools. 
As a side note, both of these far left groups were associated with violent action throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s and are now largely peaceful. They both broke from the Japanese Communist Party in 1957 and splintered from each other in 1959. So much schisming. <laughs> For approximately 25 minutes, a woman's voice read out the following repeatedly. Hasegawa Hidenori, currently running in the Tokyo Assembly elections, is a horrible man. Do not elect such a horrible man to represent you. He is a murderer. Those responsible for the broadcast were never caught. Hasegawa lost the 85 election, but went on to win in 1989. Also in Tokyo's Suginami Ward, in 1987, broadcast of NHK's big period drama, also called Taiga Drama, was interrupted for about four and a half minutes by a woman's voice accusing the Japan Revolutionary Communist League National Committee Middle Corps faction of being mass murderers and telling listeners not to vote for their candidate in the special election. Total aside, but the extremely long names of these Japanese far-left organizations made all this information really hard to read. <laughs> At least based on these most famous occurrences, we can see that broadcast signal hijacking and other forms of radio and TV piracy were not at all uncommon and were frequently politically motivated. The Karaba mission in this episode fits neatly into this pattern of historical and contemporary events that the creators would have been very familiar with. And given the high profile of Zeta Gundam and the surprising amount of overlap between political extremists and anime nerds in Japanese culture at the time, it's entirely possible that some of those post-1985 denpajacking incidents were inspired by this episode, at least partly. Art inspired by life, inspired by art, inspired by life, forever. Next time on episode 2.39, Aid and Comfort to the Enemy, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 38 and Playing Chicken. Some Jareds just want to watch the world burn. The pilots keep getting younger. Is it just me or do the Hambrabis look cooler in this episode? Bootleg tapes. Not Batch, who I've never heard of before. Gadi's fidget spinner. And Char flirts with everybody. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Due to the ongoing coronavirus outbreak in New York City, do not come share your wrong Gundam opinions with us in person. Stay home, avoid busy street corners, and share your wrong Gundam opinions with your family, your pets, and the internet. The music used in the TNN this week was Prayers by Admiral Bob. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. 
And the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Make it sound like a dying giraffe. <laughs> Yay! We got recording Thank done you. today. I would just like to say, uh, the concert that the Dropkick Murphys are streaming up, streaming tonight. They are calling it "Streaming Up from Boston." The members of AU and Karaba are more in. <laughs> Any guesses on what the rubber appendage was? <laughs> I was like, how do I say this without saying it? <laughs> that was really good. Thank you. That was a very excellent research piece. It's kind of like fun and also scary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those always make the best research pieces. Okay, are we ready for the end? The end. Okay. Sorry, I was trying to cool the cough until you finished that whole. <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt your stream of thought. Also, Trucules got their their prize. I think it's Trucules. Trucules. Yeah, that, that conversation made me so mad. <laughs> I do actually think it's interesting that they never show people smoking in this show. There, uh, there are there, smoky environments. Were there broadcast restrictions about it? I don't know, but it was the 1980s. I... We're talking about a place where smoking is very common, too. Maybe they didn't want to animate it. Think about the hand, <laughs> the hand and mouth positions, mm -hmm. the move, the extra movement that you have to add. Unless somebody just holds a cigarette in their hand mm -hmm. without ever actually smoking it. Unless somebody's just holding the cigarette. There's all this added animation you have to do for the act of smoking. And even if they're just holding it, you have to animate the smoke or it looks weird. All true, but its complete absence is noteworthy to me. I think it's absolutely noteworthy. Coming from a culture, not just Japan, but also Japanese animators who are notorious for smoking from the mid eighties. The fact that it's not there, even in like bar scenes where you would really expect it to be, stands out. I'm just saying, I think the complexity of, the complexity that it adds to animating a scene could be the entire explanation for why it's not there. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't accept it. I don't think it's sufficient. <laughs> <laughs>